Well, welcome to lesson three, part two. Now, in lesson or in part one, what we covered basically is what really is understood as the ends of the earth. From the Jewish perspective, the perspective of Jesus' disciples 2,000 years ago. We came to the conclusion that really the ends of the earth were the borders of Israel as compared to the rest of the nations. In other words, you came to the border of Israel, and once you crossed that border, you, it's like you fell off the you fell off the earth. It was the ends of the earth because you went to the nations, all regions outside of Israel. Now we brought this up because we found out that disciples, all of us are disciples. We want to be like our rabbi. We want to be the imitation of Jesus in the world. We want to be his image wherever we are. And some of the disciples are called shalakim in Hebrew, ones that are sent out. In Greek, apostolos or that has been translated into English as apostles. And so as we continue in lesson three and part two, we're going to emphasize and take a look at Paul. Paul is definitely a disciple, a Talmud of Adonai Yeshua, of Rabbi Yeshua. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he says, be like me, for I'm like him. That's disciple talk. In other words, Paul is saying, I am an, I'm imitating Jesus. I'm trying to be like him. However, we take a look at Romans 1, verse 1, and Paul is introducing himself to the congregation of Rome, and he says, I, Paul, am an apostle, chosen as an apostle. He's a disciple who is chosen to be sent out. He's a shalakim, apostolos. Now, we asked the question with regards to Paul, why is he emphasized so much in the New Testament? I mean, it starts right there from the book of Acts all the way through all of his letters. We read a lot about this disciple, the special disciple of Jesus. And I question that because the 12 and Matthias took over for Judas, if you remember, back in the book of Acts, Peter had met with the 120 and said, we need to have somebody to replace Judas. And it so happened that they had a vote and Matthias won. So those 12. And we know from church history that it's very likely that all those 12 were sent out. They were all apostles, all shalakims, chosen ones to be sent. And many of them died in foreign countries. They went to the ends of the earth and were martyred. Paul was not one of the original 12. He's as a disciple, and he's chosen as an apostle, but he was not one of the original 12. And it's very interesting to me, and I don't have the answer. Could be interesting if you want to email me and share your ideas why God chose to really emphasize Paul in the way that he did. Not John, not Peter, but Paul. We want to take a look at that. 
We want to take a look at Paul because if there is a glaring example, I mean a glaring example of a disciple and an apostle, it's this man, Paul. So definitely Paul is in Israel, and so he also leaves there and heads out to the ends of the earth. And just take a look at the check marks that indicate the various nations that he went to. Now, if you wanted to have check marks that indicated every place that he visited, it would be double this number. Anyway, the point being is that Paul really went to the ends of the earth. Look at that, even to Spain. That's recorded in the New Testament. There's a question mark that you see in the upper left-hand corner about England. There is some evidence to suggest that Paul actually went to England to actually go and make disciples. That, that is just utterly fascinating. So Paul really seems to be the one apostle that perhaps traveled the most, perhaps took the salvation of God, the Yeshua, God's Yeshua, God's Jesus, as we read in Isaiah 49, 6, and took him to the ends of the earth. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to leave the cove of the parables. That's where I left you in session one or in part one of session three. And we're going to head to another interesting, very interesting location, again, related to Paul and his bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. So we're going to take off from that last location hovering over Capernaum. We're going to travel across the Mediterranean north and west to the ancient city, the great Roman pagan city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. So as we take a look at the area of Asia, which is really kind of that eastern third of the nation, the modern nation of Turkey, we're able to see where that location of Ephesus actually is. We're looking at the ancient theater at Ephesus, and this location has a big part to play in Paul's visit to Ephesus a couple of times in the book of Acts. This is a very famous uh, archaeological place to visit in Ephesus. It's called the Celsus Library. And it really wasn't built until about 130, 135 AD. So it was not there in Paul's day. However, some people say that this is the location where Paul taught his disciples. We'll get to that in a little, just in a little bit. This is the famous street in Ephesus called Curet Street, really named by archaeologists, to my understanding. And the reason why the archaeologists named this Curet Street is during pagan festivals, where they would be honoring a specific god, like Artemis, who had her gigantic, world-renowned temple here in Ephesus. There were annual festivals to these gods, pagan, very graphic, pornographic, 
uh, parades and so on. And this was one of those streets where the parades and those uh, celebrations of the pagan gods would happen. The priests would be, the priests of the god or goddess, obviously would be the ones leading the parades, therefore priests, curates. And that's where it got its name. Now we look at the street only for the simple reason it is very likely Paul walked this street. He was here several times. And it's on his second discipleship trip, and it's a discipleship trip. It's not church planting. Jesus never told Paul to plant churches. That is a tradition, a traditional way that it has been translated in the church. Plant churches. Well, for one thing, is the word church didn't appear in the Bible until probably about 1500 A.D., it's not that the word church is not in the Bible. In English, it is. So that's one thing. But Jesus didn't say, go to plant churches. Jesus said, I'll, I'll build my church. But what does he tell his disciples? Go make disciples, not build churches. So with regards to his journey, it's his second discipleship trip. He comes to Ephesus for the first time. You can read about it in Acts 18, 19 through 21, and he leaves a short time later. Now, I, one thing I want to bring up here is he comes to Ephesus for the first time, and where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. Now, I get very frustrated when I hear teachers teach that in chapter 17, of Acts, Paul is in Corinth, and through a series of difficulties that he has, he makes a statement, okay, from now on I'm going to the Gentiles. And I have heard teachers say time and time again that from that time on, Paul would only go to Gentiles and he wouldn't meet with Jews anymore. I, I can't believe that people are not looking at the Bible carefully and historically. Because we have in chapter 18 that after Paul leaves Corinth, he's on his second missionary, missionary journey. He's on a second discipleship trip. He comes to Ephesus, and where does he go? The synagogue. So his statement in Corinth is probably just related to the fact that he was going to emphasize the Gentiles in Corinth because he comes to Ephesus and he goes to the synagogue the first time. Matter of fact, when he comes to Ephesus the second time, we'll see that in just a little bit. He goes to the synagogue again, the synagogue of the Jews. He definitely is a disciple who has come to the Gentiles to give them the good news of the Messiah, to give them the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But he also had a heart for his people, a big heart for his people. So at any rate, he's there for the first time. He leaves a short time later, and they don't want him to leave. You can read about that. And it really comes back to the concept that we discussed earlier in earlier sessions about unintentional and intentional sin. Because if you go to Leviticus 4 and you read about the sin offering, it's only for unintentional sin. And so Basically, 
All scholars agree, and this is interesting, Rabbi Akiva, a great non-Christian Orthodox Jewish rabbi at the end of the first and the beginning of the second century, plus Maimonides in the end of the 11th to the 12th century AD, these guys are renowned Torah scholars, Bible scholars in Judaism. And they agree, along with the writer of Hebrews, that there's no answer in Torah for intentional sin. In other words, you commit murder for intentional murder. Um, sorry, you're going to get executed. And there is no mention anywhere in the Torah, anywhere in the Old Testament, that if a person who commits first-degree murder actually goes through a certain sacrifice or a certain procedure or says certain prayers, that God will forgive them of their sin of intentional murder. That's an example. There's no sacrifice in the Torah. There's no sacrifice in the entire Old Testament where a person, if they participate in that sacrifice, that God said, I will forgive their intentional sin. Unintentional is all taken care of through sin sacrifice. We remember in Genesis 6-5 and in Genesis 8-21, we studied that in earlier sessions. These are verses before and after the flood. Basically, they say that we, humankind, the intention of our heart, notice the word intention, the specific intention of our, our hearts is to commit sin continually. There's a curse upon us. This was before the flood and after the flood. In other words, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws, they still carried that curse that's on us that really is just part of the fact that God gave us free will. And somehow, in our creation, our heart chooses evil intentionally and constantly. So the Old Testament, the Tanakh, was not finished. Something was missing. Paul, on his first discipleship trip, when he was in Antioch of Pisidia, and again, we talked about that in previous lessons, in Acts 13, 38-39, and he said, what the Torah couldn't do, Jesus did. Well, what, what can't the Torah do? There's no sacrifice for intentional sin. But Yeshua's sacrifice finished the Tanakh, finished the Old Testament. It finished the Torah. The living word, Jesus himself, he did it by his sacrifice. He completes the written word. So no wonder the Jews in Ephesus didn't want him to leave. Paul had given them some fantastic news. Now, he returns to Antioch of Syria. But in the meantime, while he leaves Ephesus and he ends his second discipleship trip, we read this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, this implies he's a Talmud. He's a disciple. And he's obeying Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. That you will go to the ends of the earth and bring God's salvation, God's Jesus, to the people of all nations. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. 
being acquainted only with the baptism of John. This is important. Paul left. He completed his second discipleship trip. Apollos comes right behind him. We don't get any indication that Apollos even knows Paul. Apollos starts teaching, probably at the same synagogue, probably the same people that Paul was teaching to. But Apollos only noted or was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Remember this. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Priscilla and Aquila, again, were friends of Paul. They had met in Corinth. Um, and Paul then left them in Corinth, but now they're here in Ephesus. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And that makes sense. Priscilla and Aquila learned a lot from Paul, and they traveled with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus on Paul's second discipleship trip. And when he, Apollos, wanted to go across to Achaia, which is basically southern Greece, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that Yeshua was the Messiah. So, he had come, pa Apollos, after Paul. He came to make disciples, not plant churches, and he leaves for Achaia. Paul, shortly thereafter, begins his third discipleship trip, and in that discipleship trip, he returns to Ephesus. So we pick up that story, and we read it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, okay, Apollos left Ephesus and he went to Achaia, that's southern Greece, and that's where Corinth is. So he leaves. Paul is on his third discipleship trip. He passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Now, he didn't find some disciples for himself. He has already been here. He had been teaching at the synagogue there in Ephesus. He had left, and he promised to come back. Apollos came after Paul, probably teaching the same group. And so, what had happened, Paul and Apollos basically had helped Jewish people and maybe even some Gentiles decide that Jesus was Lord and to become disciples themselves. So he found some disciples of either himself or Apollos. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? Now listen to this. And they said, into John's baptism. Wait a minute. These are disciples in Ephesus. They heard about the good news. They heard about the gospel. And all they ever were baptized in was John's baptism. And we have to say, thank you, Apollos. That's him. Because that's all he knew, Apollos. All he knew was about John's baptism. So what we're dealing with is perhaps disciples of Jesus that were made as disciples through Apollos' work. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming. 
at who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We continue in Acts 19. So it's Acts 19 verses 1 through 10, where you can read all of this. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Now, this is interesting because this translation is so awful because when you study the Greek, there is an alternative way of translating this verse that's clearer and simpler. In other words, not all about or about 12 men, but had been. So you can read the verse in an alternative equivalent translation that says there were, there had been 12 men, 12 disciples. It just makes a lot more sense. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Now, let me just stop there again. Here's Paul again. He's, he's at Ephesus the second time, and he's in the synagogue. Remember, back in 17, Acts 17, with Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, they had some difficulties in Corinth, and Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles from now on. And you will hear teachers teach that Paul is only the disciple or the apostle to the Gentiles. And here's his third discipleship trip, his second visit to Ephesus, and where is he teaching? To Jews in the synagogue, the same ones that he taught the first time he was here, which was after his statement in Corinth that I'm only going to go to the Gentiles. So historically, when people say Paul is only the disciple or the apostle to the Gentiles, because he stated that, they're absolutely wrong. Because we take a look at to see who Paul is going to teach even after that statement. So that statement in Corinth must be related to the fact that Paul had been so frustrated working with many of the Jewish people there when he had given them the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that he said, I, listen, <laughs> The, the, the Gentiles are the ones receiving this. I'm just going to emphasize them in Corinth. But that means in other places that he was going to go to, he would go to the synagogues. He would go to his own people. So it says, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And here we go again, difficulty. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. How many of them? Twelve. Reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So there's a school. People think from an archaeological point of view, it's probably located near the educational center, which might be indicated by the Library of Celsus. No archaeological discovery has been made. It's a theory. It's an idea. So maybe with regards to further work, they might find the school of Tyrannus there near that location where the library of Celsus is located. Now, he's taking away the disciples, just the 12. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, isn't this amazing? 
Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be like me for I'm like him. He wants to be like Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples. Here's Paul in Ephesus. How many disciples did he have or that, that he was working with? 12. Jesus taught his disciples. They were with him for definitely at least two years. We have to say that. And probably more than two years, maybe into three years. The Gospels are not precise at all as to how long they were with Jesus, but we'd have to say probably into the third year, but two years for sure. And here's Paul. He is teaching his disciples for two years. Jesus sent his 12 out. Remember that? They went out in pairs, and they went to the various villages in Judea and Galilee and the Samaria, and they preached the gospel. They preached the kingdom of God. And what's Paul doing? This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Is it possible that indeed Paul, just being like Jesus, sent his 12 out as well? There's some evidence that this probably was the case. Let's take a look. We're taking a look at a map of Turkey. And the area there on the left in the red is the province of Asia that the seven churches are located in this province. It's the eastern third of Turkey. And I highlight also a city that is in the southern part of the province of Asia, and that's Laodicea. I want us to emphasize Laodicea, one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Because we have to ask ourselves, how did the gospel come to this, this, this place? Laodicea was one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So somehow, somebody brought the gospel there. We take a look then that Laodicea there is on the right-hand side, and there are two cities close by, Herapolis and Colossae. Ephesus is about 100 miles to the west uh, and a little bit of the north from Laodicea uh, and the other two cities, Herapolis uh, and Colossae. So we take a little bit look, closer look at the Lycus River Valley, where these cities are located. And Heropolis is about six miles from Laodicea, and Colossae is about nine miles. When we take a look at a space picture, looking above, here are the three cities, Laodicea there on the left center, and then Heropolis there up in the upper right, and then in the lower, uh, uh, no, upper left, I'm sorry. And Colossae there to the lower right. Now, keep in mind these three cities. They're really close to each other. Now, we're going to take a look at the letter to the Colossians. Because with the letter of Colossians, we get some indications of how the gospel came to the Colossians and the Laodiceans and perhaps even Heropolis itself. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 13 and then 16, you can read about Heropolis and Laodicea. This, this gets fascinating because in that verse 16, Paul is telling the people in Colossae, nine miles from Laodicea, to take the letter that he wrote to them, the letter of, of the Colossians, to Laodicea and read it there. 
So it's interesting because right now in Laodicea, there are disciples. There must be a congregation of disciples of Yeshua in Laodicea because he wants this letter, the letter to the Colossians, to be read in Laodicea. Now, Epaphras is a co-disciple with Paul. And we read about him in Colossians 1, verse 7. Paul says, Epaphras, my co-disciple, he brought the gospel to Colossae. Well, if he brought it to Colossae, could it be that indeed Epaphras is one of the 12 that Paul met with in Ephesus and taught for two years? Is it possible? And is it possible that Epaphras also brought the gospel to Laodicea? Paul talks about that Epaphras was concerned about the believers in Laodicea and Heropolis. There's some, there's some credence to this. There's some truth to the fact that a prophet could have been one of the 12 and came with another disciple from Ephesus to the specific area to bring the gospel. Now, what's really cool, there the remains of a first century church have been found in Laodicea. You're looking at that church with the columns that are directly there in front of you. Now, what they have found is the church that they found was in existence in the late first century AD, years and years after Paul, years and years after the writing of the uh, uh, of the Revelation. So could it be that that Christian church that they found that was actually hidden in the back, the church itself was in a back room of this this mini palace. But could it be, and we don't know, that that church actually was a messianic congregation that really inhabited this entire area? Because to me, this looks like one of the courtyards inside the synagogue at Capernaum. And could it be that we're perhaps looking at what could have been a church of Laodicea in Paul's day, in the day of Epaphras? We don't know. Paul is like his rabbi. He probably sent them out. Though the Bible doesn't say that. But he is like his rabbi. It seems possible. Epaphras, could he be one of the twelve in Ephesus? Many Bible scholars would say this makes sense. Paul 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be like me, for I'm like him. And so he is imitating Jesus. And he saw the success Jesus had with sending his 12 out in pairs, then later on the 70. And so what's Paul going to do? Do the same thing like his rabbi. So Paul is an amazing example of a Talmud, a disciple, an amazing example of a disciple who was chosen to be a shaleach, one sent out. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are you ready? What if he called? Are we ready to get out of the boat?